Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. My name is Adam Jesiorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpont. Good evening, Adam. And hello to everyone listening, whether it's evening, morning, lunchtime. All, all corners of the globe could be listening. Yeah. All times at once, really. It's true. So today, given our current arc is on conceptual rabbit holes and revolving around seemingly simple questions that can become quite complex when you start to look at them more closely... I was thinking that in today's episode, uh, we could ask a very, I don't know if it's a common question, but one I've thought about a fair bit over the years is, why do limnologists know so little about oceanography? Or at least, why did these limnologists, i.e. you and me, know so little about oceanography? Sounds good. So, Adam, how much do you know about oceanography? Virtually nothing. Do you think that we extrapolate that broadly? Absolutely. I'm not sure if that's totally true, but I guess it kind of leads into the broader discussion that this will probably end up being more about and the nature of different silos in science more generally. So I think a good one. And I think we brought up a reference to this uh, vaguely just in passing in the last episode, if I'm not mistaken, the fact that we don't know anything about the oceans. We were talking about whales and plankton and all that sort of thing. So there's a good example of it. My goodness, could that be foreshadowing? Huh? <laughs> I guess is it there was. Is there much planning involved in this show? This is one of the topics we've been, we've had on our list for almost the longest. Yeah. We're self-aware, if nothing else. We know nothing about the oceans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, talking about, if you're going to bring up information silos, I guess maybe we should define it. And uh, according to the authority that is Wikipedia, um, an information silo or a group of such silos is an insular management system in which one information system or subsystem is incapable of reciprocal operation with others that are or should be related. Well, that's clear as day, isn't it? As mud. Yeah, clear as mud. Oh, all right. Well, do we need to break that down a little bit, you think? or? Uh, well, I guess it'd be uh, in terms of the topic of the episode, or just do it by example, is... How much do limnologists and oceanographers actually talk to each other when you would think those two topics, at least at a cursory level, should be highly, highly related? Right. That That's that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, and I guess it probably depends a little bit on sort of how truly separate those things are. Are they related with one another, but somewhat overlapping in that kind of Venn diagram uh, kind of style because depending on sort of the the speciality that you're talking about there's probably going to be a lot of common ground in all of those 
different what we're thinking of as silos in this case uh, if you really distill down and think about what what makes up that silo so maybe there is maybe there's there's a bit of a false siloification uh, going on I just made up a new word there how about a false dichotomy sure we can, well, if there's only I mean if there's two it's a dichotomy but uh, yeah we'll go with a, a real word there <laughs> um yeah so I think you know, um, I think there is large areas of overlap. And I think probably where I've been coming from in that it's like, why do I know so little about oceanography? And why when I'm, I've been working on studies and referencing papers and even the literature seems very separate. I cannot think of a whole lot of oceanography related papers that I would have like referred to in my own work. Um, obviously, I've never worked on the oceans. Um, but um, I think instead of, it's probably a, less a case of two distinct silos or two circles in a single Venn diagram and more like a huge patchwork of subsets Yeah, of overlapping regions of interest. Because I guess in some particular specialities, I guess, within limnology broadly, that there'd be large amounts of commonalities with oceanographers, especially when you're dealing with like especially real physical properties when you talk about things like isotopes and dating. Because yeah. um, then does it really matter uh, whether you're dealing with freshwater lakes or saltwater oceans if you're looking at the fractionation of stable isotopes over time? No, no, for sure. No, that's a good point. And, and you can continue that on. We've talked about a number of times the role that statisticians have played in the development of paleolimnology broadly. I'm sure early on in the history of, uh, of identifying diatom species, there was a lot of overlap with people who just studied all diatoms as opposed to became more specialized in this different area. So I think that that makes sense, that there is uh, going to be a lot of common threads that link through uh, but there's a tendency to, you know, study what you know, study what you have studied before and continue down that path. And that sort of leads to this silo nature. Yeah, because then, you know, there's definitely larger scientific meetings where the two studies definitely intersect. I mean, you have ASLO, for example, uh, the Association for the Sciences of Limnology and Oceanography. And I've been to an ASLO meeting before. But, uh, um, you know, the, my, re, re, it was quite a while ago since I've been to an ASL meeting, but my memory would be the sessions do get separated on some sort of level that there's an element of self-siloization allowed when you, cause you can't go to all the talks at the same time. So they're trying to, um, structure sessions to, with common themes between them. For sure. And, but that's probably, I mean, that's the same at every conference, like the new society, Canadian aquatic sciences, which, uh, came out of SCL and CCFFR meetings. Like there used to be totally separate meetings for those two societies, fish E versus limnology ones. And those are in freshwater, primarily some marine fish stuff, but, uh, at some point they decided to just integrate all of them, but there's still differences. At the paleo meeting, you can't go to every talk. There's four sessions running at a time, just on paleo limnology. So you silo into the Arctic 
paleolimnology talks, things that are more like, so I, I, that's not surprising. And I think that makes sense. All right, then maybe we've got a dud of a talk here, uh, or of a talk here. They should be, why separate it all if they're so similar and have so much overlap? Well, I think that's because there is quite a bit of difference. Like there, there are reasons that, you know, like you can go to, if you're an Arctic paleolimnologist, you could go to a talk about a temperate or an arid region thing and, and really understand everything that's going on. It's just what you're interested in. I, I think I, there would be a lot of things that uh, I might be a little lost about going to a oceanography or uh, marine biology talk uh, because there are some pretty big differences all right well and then okay so before we kind of <clears throat> end the segment then maybe we should rattle off some what do you think the major or some put a list together i guess of some of the major differences between limnology and oceanography that lead to the separation i guess right uh well i think we kind of follows on when we were talking about it uh last time the scale is is a really big uh, difference in, in lakes, whether it's truly possible or it just seems like it is, th- there seems to be more of the sort of uh, idea that you can get this holistic or complete view when you're looking at a lake. You know, it is a contained system on the landscape, an island in a terrestrial medium. Um, so you can say this is where the lake starts this is where it stops and think about the whole ecosystem even if there's different components to it that may not be i think that's probably an oversimplification maybe a little illusional to say that you can do that but it is i don't think you would get many oceanographers who would say they study the entirety of the ocean uh, holistically it has to be broken that's down true. And you can count lakes. That's true. And you can say, you know, um, I have, like, I imagine there probably is a definition, but, uh, you know, where does the, the Atlantic Ocean stop and the Arctic Ocean begin? Is there a defined boundary of some kind or is it more of a gradient? Uh I'm not sure off the top of my head. Don't know anything about oceans. Uh, I, there is, I think there is a, ba- you know, a gradient. Um, yeah. But there are definitions that have to be made. Like you need to separate them because the water is, you know, the ocean water, the marine waters of the planet are all contained uh, within one thing. And so the separation does exist. There are definitions for how you separate them. But there is a gradient. There's a mixing. We know, you know, you see that with the mixing of Atlantic waters into the into the Arctic Pacific waters mixing with uh, with the waters in the southern oceans, that kind of thing. Yeah, and and you'd also see the same kind of on a s- smaller scale, uh, those sort of gradient effects occurring in estuaries. So um, going from between the fresh and marine environments. Yeah, but yeah, and I think, and I think those are fairly one. well defined, like the proportion of riverine water. The, and and related to the tidal kind of back uh, movement of water from the oceans. So there are obviously definitions for these separations. Um, yeah, I'm not, uh, I guess I'm thinking more or less. Not that the separations don't exist, don't are not there, 
but it's a little bit less distinct than the beach. Yeah. The water comes up to here and then no further. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Give or take. Definitely. You know, yes, it varies over time. It's a grayer salt gradient in the water. Yep. Yep. Um, and then I guess still kicking in on the idea of scale would be on some level with the holistic view, um, not only can you kind of like picture a lake, but you can try and like model a whole lake ecosystem on some level, multiple trophic levels through time and try and quantify the whole thing in various metrics where I don't think, okay, again, going out on limb and ocean people come at me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's too many people that would be looking at something like oceanic circulation, for example, that will also be interested on the, uh, at, at the scale of individual diatoms. I think you're right. Also, they have their own podcasts, I'm sure. So there's no ocean people listening. Um, but please send it to your ocean friends. Uh, but no, I think that's, that's absolutely the case. It's, it's, they're not simple. Lakes are not simple, no doubt, but they, they are probably simpler. simpler. Yeah. To model the, the different complexities of that. Uh, and, and I think you're definitely right. Is that you could find limnologists who who are are very interested in things from the the biological through to more complicated physical limnology in the ocean. I think you know people probably are are uh, focused on on one of those things because they are a little bit more complicated. So need to put the time into it. Not uni- universally, but on average. Okay. And um, one other thing that I like thought, and then I don't know, excuse me, whether it matters that much in terms of like the differences, but then when you get into the biology aspects of things and like the fundamental problems of homeostasis being reversed yeah, and different solutions to the problems. So I guess when you're in like very dilute fresh waters, you know, like ligotrophic waters, the, there's a huge concern of organisms of keeping their stuff in and like not losing nutrients or whatever it might be uh, to the surrounding medium. Um, and then is that a little bit different in salty environments where you're trying to keep the the salts out, I guess? Oh, absolutely. Fundamentally different. Yeah, very, that's a really good point. Uh, and, and the, the mechanisms for doing that are different and there's very few organisms that can, um, cross between those, those different locations for long periods of time, whether it's just fresher marine waters, estuarian waters, uh, and truly into lakes. That, that's a, a rare, relatively rare biological, uh, capability on earth. I, I'm sure I know there are a few, uh, probably more than than we know in our common kind of the things you see on nature documentaries but uh in general yeah that's one of the main concerns for organisms is keeping their ions and all that stuff in balance in their system for their own uh, physiological activities good point okay so i don't know are we talking in circles here the differences are not real and then the differences are real 
Maybe a little bit, but I mean, it, it, I think it, what we also said, it, it really does depend on the, the scale that you look at and what component of it you're looking at. So I don't, I don't think we have uh, wasted the, the multi-year planning of this episode. Um, uh, but it, maybe it's not as distinct as we think. And, and let's uh, distill it down a little bit more in the next couple segments. Sounds good. All right. So getting back to the differences between limnology and oceanography, um, I think I mentioned earlier, I, I really have had very little connection to oceanography at all. Um, all of my study has been very focused on freshwater systems, very much soft water, freshwater systems, looking at things like acid rain impacts, calcium decline, and it's kind of interesting in terms of, you know, when I have ventured into the, what's the word, oceanographic literature, um, you know, I've been looking for parallels for things between like low calcium zooplankton and marine equivalents that would fall into the jellyfish. And you find these superficial kind of similarities, um, especially looking at biological organisms in terms of the you know, increasing of jellyfish in the ocean that are, yep. has a variety of factors, including warming um, versus, you know, the jellification of cladosterone communities where you have the harder carapace and zooplankton not being able to thrive as well as calcium concentrations fall. And so you have this very kind of superficial comparison of squishy things growing, increasing here and squishy <laughs> things increasing there in completely different environments for completely different reasons, but it makes a neat parallel um, on like uh, in presentation slides and whatnot. But, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of about um, as close as I've ever really gotten as silly as it is to say. Yeah, I... I well, I, I never said before. I've never been to an Aslo meeting. Even like, I don't think I've ever been at a meeting that had uh, a, a, the name of oceanography in the title. Um, certainly, seen some some talks on marine species, but for, that's more of a biology kind of marine biology perspective. I did do all the work on the the dead zone and. Uh, and the saltwater intrusions. Yeah, so that's uh, some work that we did quite a few years ago in the Northwest Territories related to uh, a one particular saltwater intrusion. So a storm surge from a bad weather event that uh, moved significant ocean water into the freshwater environment of this delta the mackenzie delta um and, and broadly we were interested in if that happens quite often if it's something that was kind of rare is it something that's increasing because of climate change that kind of thing so i've thought a little bit about salty waters but really how it relates to changes to lakes changes to the fresh waters as opposed to the marine environment from a marine perspective in that work we were and if interested in how storms manifest, but that's more meteorological, how sea level is rising, but that's more of a climate change impact as opposed to a marine ecosystem perspective. And any of the times uh, during that that I really kind of 
tried to dive into the literature on saltwater marshes and just kind of even coastal marine environments, one of the things I definitely took away was just how different those ecosystems are from truly freshwater systems that are only geographically separated by you know, kilometers. So in the same climatic environment, but just the the nature of the sediments often being much coarser, coarser grained, you know, sandier, that kind of thing, because the marine's so energetic. Um, and then the, the things that live there are really fundamentally different. Uh, so it, it gave me more of an appreciation of how different those things could be even in a, a constrained geographic context. So this is an interesting uh, kind of point for a couple of reasons. So when you were in like studying these saltwater intrusions within the broader group, were there any marine scientists at all? There were people who studied marine like uh, geologists, I guess you would say, more marine sediment, more um, really related to the how the delta comes into the marine environment. So they're interested in the growth of deltas. But I would have called them more geologists by by training than uh, like oceanographers. I don't think any of the people on that project were um, specific to studying oceans. Um, and maybe that's because there just aren't that many in the sort of the Western kind of Arctic. And, and it really is, it, it, for many reasons, big deltas are a little different because they kind of are freshwater dominated. So they're, you know, they're river, you get a lot of riversologists there. Um, so no, there were not. Short answer, long answer, um, it might've been interesting, uh, maybe in future. I have interest to go back there. So to see, because there are people who study the cold ocean environments, lots of great marine oceanographers, marine biologists in Canada. Okay. And so then kind of just touching back on your personal connection to the potential distinction. So you're looking at the marine intrusions into these lakes. So you're like in a single core, you're looking at both freshwater and marine diatoms. So in those kind of, is there much overlap or they're just completely different? So like freshwater, freshwater, marine, marine, marine kind of thing when you're doing the actual work. Yeah, that's a good question. And it wasn't even marine, marine, marine. It was more brackish, brackish, brackish. Like the species, if you were doing a space, so we were looking down in time in a core. And if you were looking at a space for time substitution, which is what we were kind of comparing to in other uh coastal environments in the area. Uh, there was work in those areas on what was living in some of those salt lagoon coastal uh, environments. You, you would find the taxa when the marine intrusion occurred in those sediments more akin to the brackish lagoon kind of species uh, than the more freshwater dominated ones. So species with names like Naviculus salinarum and uh, Criticula halophila. Like you could, you know, you literally couldn't make them up. Um, were the kind of species that, that took over, but never the full marine environment. And I think a good part of that is that uh, just habitat wise, even a lake that's, I don't remember what the deepest lake was, five, six meters, maybe it's something like that. Not, not very deep. Um, 
it doesn't take long for the ocean to drop deeper than five meters. So even if the water chemistry was accurate or it was uh, uh, comparable and appropriate for the species to exist, the habitat differences are, are significant. Okay. Um, so then, is it just really, uh, you know, another environmental gradient like pH that we just happen to have not as many encounter the full gradient very often in terms of freshwater, you know, seawater's over here at like 35 grams per liter, freshwater lakes are somewhere around zero uh, or, well, you know, yeah. in the milligrams per liter yeah. as opposed to uh, grams per liter. Um, and you have got your brackish environments. And so there's a gradient and there's a lack of uh, connection because maybe the oceanographers hang out with the estuaryologists a little bit more than the limnologists and the estu and like the true bid bridge are the people studying brackish water. That's an argument for sure. I think you, you, you know it's not a bad one. The, there is a transitional nature that you don't find, you know, ecosystems at every. Uh, value along there you know it's not a, a, a gradual true gradient it's very punctuated yeah yeah that's exactly perfect word for it um so that might be uh the the argument against but if you look closely enough anywhere you will find organism you know you will find that gradient you may not find it in a geographic kind of location that's constrained but i think the that there's some argument to be made for that and that maybe the yeah we just, we, you know, limnologists hang out with the river people. That is limnology. Limnology is not just lakes. Um, and and the marine researchers kind of are on their other end. And uh, that's one of the main gradients. I don't know. What do you think? You posed the, yeah. the question. Do you have a, of an opinion on it or a thought on it? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, um, yeah, I guess maybe when you start thinking of it in that term of like a punctuated gradient that you just don't see everything along the lines. Because say you're going from 35 milligrams per liter to, which would be a quite a salty lake, to 35 grams per liter in the ocean, you're dealing with a thousandfold increase. Yep. So that'd be like jumping up three pH units, mm -hmm. so going from pH seven down to pH four, you know, like that is a substantial, sub substantial change, but you'd say, you know, and if you're looking at pH, you wouldn't necessarily have that same distinction of, well, I only study acid lakes. I don't study circumneutral lakes, right? <laughs> it's true. That's a good point. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, um, you may, you may specialize, but you wouldn't fundamentally think you don't understand that other lake. Um, yeah, and, and then if you were to extrapolate it out again until, like, I don't know, now we're really getting out of our lane, but talking about terrestrial environments um, and like jungleologists versus forestologists, right. it's like, yes, they may, one person may study gorillas and somebody else may study bears, but the specifics um, uh, may vary, but... You, you know, they're not going to be completely lost when they uh, um, start 
you know, talking to your, to each other and comparing their analyses, for, for example. True. And I think you would even get, I mean, that's a biology difference. And I think you would get an even more similar uh, kind of points for discussion if you were like a, a someone studying hydrology in those locations or soil carbon or those kind of things where where the gradient uh changes that a little bit less than bears versus lions because there's an evolutionary biogeographical difference there but the point is made that um the planet is gradients of all of these different variables, some of them co-occurring, some of them go in different directions. Um, and uh, you can't study all of it necessarily. And some of them just make more sense to be these sort of dichotomous uh, silos that you can break them apart into as, as just sort of a natural way that you you have to specialize in something. Yeah. And like you got to come yeah, in the world. You got to compartment mentalize it a little bit to wrap your head around aspects of it yeah and um you know everything is a model and you're throwing away the stuff that you're not interested in at that moment in time but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist it's a good point um yeah and and there is lots of of i don't know uh, there there is a push to to think of other aspects of of research and where those commonalities are so where i mentioned the new society the Society of Canadian Aquatic Sciences. Um, you which, brought it up twice now. Yeah, I know. Could you be associated with the society I, in some I way? I may, in <laughs> fact, be the uh, chair of the membership committee. So if you're interested in uh, joining, in addition to being on the executive board and the treasurer. So uh, I have a vested interest in people uh, from the society. I don't get anything from it. Um, yeah, so as I said, that's historically been fish uh from a biology perspective, very much biology driven, both marine and uh, freshwater uh, and limnology, which technically includes rivers, but in Canada, limnology tends to be dominated by, um, uh, by lake uh, research. Um, even though we have so much flowing water too, I, I don't, you don't see a lot of that represented at least in SEL. There are other research groups on the geomorphology or the biology of those things. Um, but but the goal in renaming it in addition to uh, bringing those two groups together is to, to make it more inclusive of other silos, whether it be marine mammal researchers, though not fish, uh, or oceanographers, physical oceanographers, and everywhere in between, estuaryologists, uh, people who study wetlands, which technically fall into limnology, but, you know, it is a little bit different um, as a way of bringing everyone kind of together. So to, to learn and, and, and probably the goal would be to identify the fact that there are a lot more of these commonalities overlapping uh, that, that we can maybe don't need to always be in our silo. Because it's great to go to meetings that are really specific, but it's also kind of cool sometimes to, to see those other aspects. Yeah. Um, so then just while we're talking about the society, so Society of Canadian Aquatic Sciences is the new name. Is that yep. correct? So do you abbreviate that as SCAS or SCAS? Uh, SCAS is not, uh, <laughs> been, I've never heard anyone say SCAS. Uh, I'm not sure we've officially decided on the pronunciation of the abbreviation. I say SCAS. Um, SCAS. But SCAS I have heard as well. I think I, 
I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think we can probably rule out SCAS. But that's you my never vote. Know. I guess you my vote. Yeah. It goes up to an open vote. Uh, yeah. um. So that's it. <laughs> okay. Oh, very cool. Yeah. No, I definitely, it's interesting when you talk about the, um, yeah, this kind of siloization at meetings has always been a fairly interesting one to me because on the one hand, you could go, and I have in the past been to something like Aslo and going through the sessions or having something where nothing really jumps out at me. So you just kind of go and sit in almost like a random session that has one or two interesting talks and then thinking you're going to be lost and then not actually being lost um, and following along and being quite interested in something that you only have a kind of superficial knowledge, background knowledge of. And then and the flip side of that is going to a completely paleo focused meeting and then going into a session and be an aspect of paleo that you have incredibly little familiarity with uh, and uh, sitting down and mm -hmm. in my case, be like talking about, you know, dating of like long, long, long ice cores or, or core and like, um, yeah, no, I do. I've seen plus level level cores where I, the vast majority of my work and reading has been focused in the last 200 years, really. And then getting into a talk that's going on about the last 10,000 sure. years plus. And then you start thinking and then looking at changes where you go, okay, let me try and think how many centuries are represented within any one of these one intervals. Yeah. And then you're just like kind of losing the flow that way a little bit. And it's kind of funny in terms of where any one individual fits amongst all these silos. Oh yeah. The quaternary palynologist is a silo within paleolimnology in the same way that the uh, marine biologist is. This is a, a slightly different one. And, and I absolutely agree in that, you know, you may, I don't know. I find in at meetings where you know kind of the the method really well, if it's linked by paleo limnology, there's less of those talks that you see like, "Ha, huh, that's really cool." But you you know you take other things away from it. You, you're not really surprised by talks at the paleo meeting all that often, um, again, even if you, you are know the general right. gist, and it's like the actual kernel of novelty to you from any one study is quite small right because it mm -hmm. can be distilled down to a sentence in most in a lot not i'm oversimplifying but in a lot of cases it's like what, oh yeah i know what, you what mean. are the findings whereas you go into a talk again the comparative is like this whole paragraphs of new information that you've not really thought of before and it's just a a little a little bit different in terms of the scale of novelty i guess all right, so I guess, you know, one place to wrap all this sort of discussion about the potential siloization of limnology and oceanography um, and in research generally, um, does it matter? And, you know, where does paleo fit in all this? Because it is by almost by definition interdisciplinary science that kind of defies siloization in many ways writ large yeah it does uh well i mean I, and each person can answer that for themselves if if they want it and probably based on arguments they'll have to drone up because i don't think we've done a great job of arguing uh the whole story we've been a little bit all over the place on on this one but that's not always a bad thing i i would say no it doesn't really matter that that's my opinion on this and i think it was before even if anything i think maybe i've 
as we've gone through this, I've talked myself into thinking that the silos are not so siloed, uh, and that those gradients are probably more important. But but there are real divisions as well. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, I think I agree. I think it's one of those things where when we start thinking about the episode, we go, oh, you know, this is kind of a topic because it is true on a pure level, like. I don't really know a whole lot about oceanography um, and the divisions are very real and the silo is real. And I think, especially from a very lay person point of view, like the conflation of the two is unavoidable. It's like the water, they're both water and there's going to be have huge similarities and you, yeah. you'll lump them together on a cursory level. Um, but then as you start, you know, peeling back the layers of the onion, you start seeing the differences and i guess if you're spending too much time with any one layer of the onion you think the differences are really big but really not not so much and broadly individual scientists have colossal amounts of freedom to move between the silos as they see fit over the course of their research um in terms of you know if you're studying lakes on the plains or brackish lakes you know the saltwater systems, like you're thousands of miles away from an ocean, then maybe there isn't a huge amount of overlap with ocean systems that it just wouldn't make sense to try and jump silos because, you know, the parallels may not be there. Whereas, you know, if you're, if you're coast, coastal systems, storm intrusions, and all of a sudden the, you know, the Venn diagram dots overlap a lot more and that's just the way way it works depending on the question being asked yeah and i i absolutely agree and the idea that's i really like the point that that people have the ability to move around and do all the time there's there's no reason that someone who studies diatoms in lake sediments couldn't go and study diatoms in ocean sediments or in the ocean waters uh it, it and some people might find that a little strange, like, oh, wow, you went, you're, you've gone to the ocean side of, of things, but don't really look at you funny when you say you're going to go study PCBs in lake sediments. I would argue that that's fundamentally more different than, than it is to go into a different geographic location and, and start studying something kind of more uh, similar. And yet uh, no one would bad an eye at the fact that you're going to go do a postdoc in a chemistry kind of lab so uh, you just kind of do what you want and and follow those interests and the opportunities and and maybe there there is the potential for some more overlap and, and i'm sure there are people who have done that made that switch and been really uh, successful brought some interesting ideas and then learned a bunch of new stuff yeah and i guess as time goes on like yes, maybe not within an individual graduate student project, but over the a research career of a professor. Like I mean, the collaborations that arise may lend themselves to these kind of questions. And so you know, like I think you know, we refer to John all the time because that's where we did our grad work. But think of him primarily as someone that uh, um, did a huge amount of work in Arctic environments. Um, but there's definitely been. Uh, a number of uh, projects where it's like, well, let's have a look at tropical systems as sure. well and do some compare and contrast elements. Yeah, well, uh, definitely you can have those kind of jumping off events or there can just be a natural drift that occurs in your research. You know, you 
are studying these things and then you go off and maybe make a little jump and find something that you're interested in and then that progresses down the line and and before you know it you're quite a ways away from where it was that you started and that's perfectly fine you know you follow your interests you follow the money sometimes you know it's part of the game uh and see where it ends up and and you do have this background in it i think you you learn you, you know what you learned in those earlier projects programs whatever they are um feeds into everyone being a little bit different in their research that's how you can have so many people studying any science um people have this different background no one wants to be a clone of their phd supervisor arguably you know there's there's a niche that you need to carve out and if you're a clone you know th- those don't work for well biology exactly and i guess so i guess what we're really talking about it's like why do limnologists seem to know so little about oceanographers it's like well uh about oceanography um uh, maybe just because the questions that they're asking are not taking them into the ocean realms and their knowledge that they have is more transferable than you might think at first glance and you can do it in a couple of like jumping steps because you know you and i our knowledge has been primarily on small lakes uh small inland lakes and the jump even just to systems like the Great Lakes is quite large in terms Huge. of how different those systems are. But I wouldn't say I know nothing about the Great Lakes. You know, it's like the, the chain, like a lot more, the systems are a lot more complex and scales increase. And it, I guess I'm just kicking into the whole idea of gradients again. Yeah, I remember the, f- oh, sorry. Go I was just going to say, you just have to adapt, adapt the conceptual models that you're working with on any given day to the the systems that you're interested in. Yeah, I remember the first time I was asked to review a paper on the Great, like about the Great Lakes, about sediment cores. It was like diatom-based sort of papers. And I'm like, I, I can't do that. I don't know anything about the Great Lakes. And then, I, and I may have turned it down the first time. I, I don't know if I was a postdoc or whatever. And then, okay, fine. And But you get others, you know, there's only so many people to review. And at one time I, I did accept such a paper and realized, Hey, that, that I can make my way. I may have I to go do and this. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I may have to f- do a little bit more reading it might take me a little bit longer, which makes it uh, a little more work. And I don't, wouldn't say I do a lot of them, but I, I have done more than one over, uh, the time on, on the great lakes or bigger lakes. And, uh, and it turned out okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, especially when you look at an individual paper that, um, how many times have you even have uh, either been the reviewer or had a review and there's something along the lines of the study's quite interesting. I don't know very much about the specifics or I have to this say or, you know, this, that and the other. The stats are a little bit over my head, but, I, you know, the broad themes I, I follow and agree with in the methodological aspect of the questions. And you're going to have to rely on the other reviewers for statistical um uh, you know, a re- more rigorous review of the stats. And so I think that is just another aspect, again, because nobody knows everything about everything. Definitely. That's it. Uh, I guess we're running out of time because I guess I did have mm, no down where do rivers and estuaries fit into all this. Oh, man. So just... 
that the <laughs> limnology we may have to do another one just on limnology uh you know the the other part the other half of limnology and uh rivers and and I think you would get probably a very similar, I mean, I don't know, we, we maybe uh, probably won't be in the next few episodes, but one day we'll put a card that will sit around for a couple of years and we'll be like, yeah, yeah, let's go back and talk about rivers. Um, Why do the not just yeah, so little about they rivers? They flow into the lakes that we're interested in. Uh, from a paleo perspective, that's a pretty straightforward one because they don't build up very well. So not great for collecting sediment cores, but broadly in limnology, I think you'd get a similar kind of outcome. And I only know anything about rivers because I teach a course on river processes, but it's very sedimenty. So yeah, another topic for another day. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. So in terms of why do we uh, know so little about oceanography, I guess we know more than we probably think we do. And maybe we don't know about as much about lakes as we thought we did. And it turns out that paleolimnology is just the friends we made along the way. <laughs> what more can we ask for? <laughs> All right. Well, I think I will end it there and say thanks again for listening to Core Ideas, the paleolimnology podcast. If you have a question or a comment or perhaps a suggestion for a future show, please send us a note. Our email address is coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at coreideaspaleo. We read everything you send. It doesn't take very long most of the time uh, <laughs> in terms of reading it. But sometimes it can take us a little while to get to it. So eventually yeah. we'll get to it. Thanks yeah. for sending anything in. Uh, an archive of all our past episodes and many show notes. There's a bit of a backlog. I'm not totally up to date on the last year or so is maintained on our website at coreideas.ajazeroski.ca. Uh, the link is listed on our Twitter bio. And if you are so inclined, you can give us a rating or subscribe on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star ratings are great. But in the end, we don't care all that much. We're still doing it for fun. And that's it for today. Uh, but we'll be back soon to explore another conceptual rabbit hole related to paleolimnology, uh, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy. <laughs>